You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the cinematographer for the four-year-old version, Eric Bronco. Any more thought on what kind of play we want to write? Remember, if you put in nothing, it'll be nothing. Like your career? Remember this face? She was one of Spotlight Magazine's 30 under 30 playwrights to watch. We watched, but where'd she go? How are you? Good. Archie tells me you're teaching. How's somebody who ain't had no real hit gonna tell me how to write a play? She ain't no Tyler Perry. I did win a 30 under 30 award. Yes, it was quite a couple of years ago. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all-white play? This some bullshit. It rang a little inauthentic. I asked myself, did a black person really write this? This some fucking bullshit, bullshit. Think about me doing hip hop. Doing what to it? I want to make a mixtape about the 40-year-old woman's point of view. Why my skin so dry? Why am I yawning right now? Why them AARP niggas sending shit to my house? This is 40. Hey, your mom, what you need? <clears throat> Beats, tracks. For what? For me. Yo, here's a little story about a girl who's black. Let's add some asthma attacks from all the courtyard crack. Yo, no happy blacks in the plot lines, please. But a crane shot a big mama crying on her knees. Yo, yo, Rodimus Miss Prime, 40 year old version. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> this is about creating something that is mine. You're not just talking about shit. You making shit. Shit. I got you. You don't think I'm some crazy old girl for doing this? Mm, I ain't say all that. 40-year-old version. White man with a black woman's butt. How you carry all that back there? What the fuck? Yes, what the fuck? Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about uh, your work on the 40-year-old version. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, just tell me about uh, coming out of this project. What, uh, you know, how did you how did you come to this project and what made you want to shoot this movie? Um, I I mean, kind of as with everything, I'm not exactly sure what led to me shooting the project, but uh, <laughs> but I had known Rhonda for years. Um, I think, you know, we were aware of each other and each other's work, uh, so I was... Um, you know, I was just pleased to get the call from her uh, when it came time to uh, find a DP for this project. Um, as to what made me want to shoot it, uh, I think an easier, you know, I, I don't know what there would have been about this project that would make me not want to shoot it. It was mm. like to shoot a black and white movie in New York, you know, where I where I grew up, kind of about hip hop. That kind of, you know, it kind of took place, you know, in a world that that is is. You know, I know like the back of my hand, so yeah. So this was a no-brainer for me. So when you came to the project, was was the decision already made to shoot in black and white, or was that a, a decision that you helped come to? Uh, it, the the front of the script on the title page of the script it said "The New York Tale in Black and White." Um, gotcha. So while as much as I would love to take credit for it, uh, you know, that was not my that was not my doing, and you know, and I think. Black and white is one of those things. I don't know that you can find too many DPs that would that could successfully lobby to uh, shoot a film in black and white when when the director had been envisioning it in color. Sure, that's sure. usually the kind of decision that's made, you know, before a DP is even brought in. Yeah, 
No, that's cool. Well, well, you, so you said you had known Rada for years. Obviously, this was her first film as a director. Tell me about what it was like working with her and, and, and about your collaboration. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'd known Rada for a long time. We met at a, at a uh, film festival in Philadelphia called Black Star um, a couple of years back, which is like, you know, just a fantastic festival. And it's like a family reunion every year you go back. Um, so we knew each other from there and just kind of, you know, from kind of the like indie film world a little bit. Um, and, you know, and yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, incredibly, an incredibly, I think, you know, collaborative effort. Uh, you know, one of the things that is always, that is always kind of tricky, you know, about first time directors is, is their kind of ability to, to be clear, uh, and be forceful about what they want and fight for what they want. Um, which is why kind of, you know, a lot of first time directors, the vision is not quite there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and, you know, luckily Rada did not have that problem. So, you know, that's kind of, that was kind of the, the, I think what sets her apart from a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, vision doesn't seem like something that, that Rada is lacking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, your approach to the material. How did you kind of approach the visual style of film? Obviously, we already talked about that, that it was envisioned as a black and white, a black and white project from, from the start. Uh, but how did you approach the, the visual style? Yeah, I mean, you know, Rada and I kind of went back and forth a lot and in, in, in prep discussing how we were going to do things and what the visual language would be, you know, separate from, you know, black and white is kind of, black and white and on 35 is kind of the, the, you know, the first thing people see, and it's kind of such an in-your-face thing that it kind of becomes a story, but, you know, you can shoot a movie, you know, even once you've made those choices, almost an infinite amount of ways. Um, So, you know, it was really about developing a language, and, you know, I wanted a camera that was going to be, that was going to be kind of a scene partner, uh, you know what I mean, in the scenes, especially because, you know, it, you know, I think I think we developed a language that was that's that's funny, but is also, you know, allows the audience to feel emotionally connected to these characters. Um, you know, we wanted to feel real. You know, maybe "doc" is not the right word, but it was in that kind of in that space a bit. Um, you know, but you know, kind of punched up a bit from you know from from kind of what your maybe typical "doc" would, would look like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I definitely see that. The, the camera definitely has a lot of presence, very uh, I, I rarely locked down. At least that's what it that's what it seemed like. It seemed like it was very handheld and, and active within the scenes. Um, yeah, the whole yeah, I mean, the whole movie handheld. I don't yeah. I don't think I'm trying to think right now. There are no there's one actually the spoiler, uh, the last shot right. of the film. Is right. Yes. And I think that's it. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's another another tripod shot in the whole movie. Um, I, I I can say with certainty there's not. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> so yeah, I mean we, you know, a lot of the scenes were kind of developed as as long takes. A lot of the blocking uh, was, you know, in the interest of having the camera be able to kind of weave through scenes and weave through spaces. Um, you know, real like kind of a lot of whip pans. There's, you know, there's a crash zoom or two for, for comedic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a tons of, of, of oneers, yeah. um, in the film as well. So, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of about having, having a camera that, you know, uh, that was really kind of like a true audience surrogate. 
Right. Yeah, and then there's also I think I counted three times in the film. I might be wrong. When when Rada is rapping, the visual style kind of changes to the to those wide angles, close on her face. Um, talk to me about how how you approached those specific moments where where it kind of changed styles. Yeah, I mean, when she kind of breaks out into um, into the kind of kind of you know, rapping hip hop portions when she kind of becomes Rodimus Prime. Yeah. Um, you know, there's kind of like a transformative thing. And, you know, there there are, are we definitely go with a wider lens. We go closer to her. Um, you know, the camera is much more active, um, you know, kind of invoking, evoking those like kind of, you know, the hip hop videos I grew up on. Yeah. Um, you know, we definitely were trying to figure out a way to to when she goes into that space, really visually separate it from the rest of the movie and kind of give the audience a visual clue that like, you know, she's a whole new person right now. Yeah. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. So you referenced, you know, hip-hop videos that you grew up in. Um, Throughout the film, were there any other specific influences on the look of the movie? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we watched kind of a lot of the, the, the classic you know, the classic kind of uh, black and white, kind of like modern black and white films, you know what I mean? So yeah. so big references were, were Manhattan, obviously, Mahane, mm-hmm. uh, to an extent, she's got to have it. Um, and yeah, I mean, those were, you know, kind of our like, a lot of kind of, the, you know, separately from Manhattan, kind of other Gordon Willis, uh, kind of New York movies, um, kind of these like 70s, style of films were, were a big influence on on me. Um, definitely the work of, say, like, you know, Adam Hollander, um, who shot, like, Panic in Needle Park. 
um, those were kinds of the kinds of movies that that uh, I really watched a lot of in, in, in prep for this. That's awesome. And photo- actually, and also photography, uh, you know, also was a huge influence. Uh, like street photography was was a large, large, large influence on the visual style of this film. When I showed up, uh, when I met Rodder for the first time, we met in a you know in a coffee shop in New York, um, and I. I was coming to New York to shoot something. Uh, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to meet about 40 um, to see if it would be a good fit. And uh, I brought a whole carry on suitcase just <laughs> filled the room with uh, like with black and white street photo books. Wow. Uh, so I think, I think I, I rolled into the, into the meeting with a little rolling suitcase. And, you know, she was like, so like, tell me what you see. And I was like, flipped open the thing, she dropped a stack <laughs> of books on the table. And I was like, let's start here. Nice. Um, you know, which I think, which I think, uh, you know, I think immediately kind of put on the on the table, you know, my my level of commitment to the you know to, to the <laughs> material and and you know my kind of my comfort level drawing from you know drawing refer- from references that were not necessarily other films. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, just your experience on this film. Were, were there any uh, specific scenes that stand out that uh, are sequences that that you enjoyed uh, shooting or had a particular challenge with or anything like that? Yeah, I mean there were tons of tons of challenging uh, challenging locations and scenes and things. You know, the we we were, I think, probably the last film to shoot in this neighborhood up in Harlem uh, that had just seen like a very 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 busy uh, summer of of filming. Hmm. So, you know, it was not so easy for us to get permits and things like that. I think when the neighbor, when the neighbors, you know, saw another film was coming to their block, a lot of, you know, neighbors were like, Mm-mm, you know, so we had a tough time getting permits. Uh, and even when we could get permits, they were somewhat limited. So, you know, for example, the street outside Rada's apartment, uh, like my initial plan was to get a big crane, put lights on top. So Rada's apartment location was on the top floor of a building uh, which meant we couldn't light, you know, obviously couldn't light from the street. Mm-hmm. And it also faced north. So there was no sunlight that ever really came into Rada's apartment. It was just kind of, yeah. uh, you know, soft, dim, ambient light. Um, so, and so the per- we were able to get a permit uh, for the block, but the, on the permit was the fact that we could not set up cranes or any lights or anything like that. There could be no equipment on the street. So I was in a bit of a bind trying to figure out how to get light into her apartment. Um, and ultimately, uh, with my with my gaffer, Tyler Harmon Townsend, and my key grip, Scott D'Angelo, we were able, we came up with a solution, uh, which is a little unorthodox, but we actually, seeing how the location was on the top floor, we actually built a big um, bounce frame that we hung uh, hung horizontally extending off of the roof of the building Mm. uh and then we were able to put a bunch of lights um actually on the stoop of the building so they weren't on city property (laughs) they were on the building property and shoot them shoot them straight almost straight up um and bounce them off the uh off our frame which gave us a really nice uh a really nice kind of light sunlight that pushed into her into her apartment which you know hopefully uh, when you see the film, kind of looks very natural and doesn't yeah. look like we we did a ton of work in there. Hopefully, it just feels like, you know, we were shooting in, a, in an apartment. But, you know, it allowed us to to kind of get our exposure up and get a little a little light pushed into that space. Yeah, 
And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about another another section of lighting. Um, uh, at one point in the film, uh, Rada is talking about the classroom, uh, and she, she talks about the bland lighting uh, that's in the classroom. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you how did you approach lighting that room, especially in contrast to something like Dee's apartment? Um, how did you how did you kind of approach the lighting in those different environments to kind of uh, illustrate the, the, the different headspace that Rada is in, in those environments. Yeah. So with, with the hip hop scenes and the scenes where, um, where kind of, you know, I feel like there's there, the scenes that like are really kind of, uh, uh, like all about hip hop mm-hmm. and take place in that world are, uh, D's apartment, uh, the, um, Queen of the Ring yeah. kind of rap battle that's up in the Bronx, uh, as well as her show at Arlene's Grocery. Um, something that I did there is really in all of those scenes, um, it's everything is darker yeah. uh, overall in those scenes, and there's always kind of a light that is that is drawing kind of drawing both the audience and Rada kind of into this world a little bit, kind of like a like a moth to a flame. Almost so, like in Dee's apartment, uh, like the brightest light. It, the apartment is kind of on the dimmer side, just a lot of practicals. But then D always has a really kind of high key bright light on his workstation. Mm. Um, and when you're in that space, I feel like that light kind of naturally brings you toward D a little bit. Um, same with like the stage in Arlene's grocery, uh, and then even more so, which is kind of like the turning point for Rada. You know when she really kind of is exposed to this world of hip hop that she was previously unaware of is the, the queen of the ring battle where it, it literally is kind of like, there's almost no light in the room aside from this almost, you know, toppy kind of halo of light above the ring, um, which kind of literally draws them through the room to that ring. Uh, So that was something, that was something I worked on was kind of whenever there's, whenever there's kind of like a big hip hop scene, it was about, you know, this, you know, everything else kind of faded away except for the music. Right. Which, you know, in contrast to like the classroom, you know, it's like bright windows, a lot of sun coming in. We, you know, uh, we, you know, we definitely um, kind of accentuated the sunlight coming in. There were a lot of mirrors in that room, a lot of lights rigged into the ceiling that you don't see. It's kind of mimic sunlight coming in, um, you know, so that those were the locations. A lot of the other locations that are not kind of so hip hop centric were really about kind of bringing more light into a space. Um, you know, specifically also the the restaurant where she first meets Jay Whitman. Um, we, you know, that location was partially chosen because it had these kind of like very large um, architectural, uh, you know clusters of light bulbs uh, mm. at the top of pillars um so you know a lot of these kind of traditional traditional spaces have a lot more sources of light and they're much kind of an brighter at an even level as compared to the hip-hop which is really kind of like one big source that, mm. that really hope, hopefully draws you in well, um, love your work on Forty Year Old Version. Uh, is there anything you're working on now? I know you said you're you're on a show right now. Anything you can tell us about? Tell us you're working on. Yeah, I'm doing a I'm doing a, a 
a show um, for HBO Max called Community Service, uh, written by and starring uh, Michael Che from SNL, oh. um, and directed by Oz Rodriguez, uh, who uh, did uh, a ton of the kind of like SNL digital shorts, and uh, he just did a movie called Vampires vs. the Bronx. Um, that's uh, that just came out uh, this week. Awesome. Um, so so yeah, it's fun. It's kind of like a you know kind of you know kind of biting social issues um so but it's but it's really funny and really heartfelt so i'm excited to be a part of it sweet yeah definitely looking forward to that it's great awesome man well thanks so much for your time uh, again thanks for your work uh, uh love the movie and uh yeah definitely i uh, can't wait for more people to see it yeah thank you so much for the kind words Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the cinematographer for the four-year-old version, Eric Bronco, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can watch the four-year-old version currently on Netflix. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.